Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. So we're doing a study on the book of Acts, and uh, we've been working on that for about 20 years now. So we're going through the book of Acts. People say, you know, we love you, Pastor Danny. We're getting a little tired of the book of Acts. But anyhow, uh, but I'm loving studying. Uh, the reason I do this is be a couple, a couple reasons that I'm doing this approach to preaching these days. Uh, number one is I am alarmed by the lack of biblical uh, knowledge in America. We have terrible, terrible uh, biblical literacy in America. We always talk about, hey, we need to get the Bible back in schools. Well, my big thing is we need to get the Bible back in church because there's not a lot of Bible going on in the church. So, so that's the first reason I do that is to just, we really are in, I think, a biblical knowledge crisis in America. So the second thing is, is uh, I want you to be able to read the Bible for yourself, and I want to give you a little background so you can understand that. And then every week, of course, when we teach the Bible, we always come uh, through a text, and we deal with things that we maybe would normally ignore and so it's good for us in that way. And the other thing is we want to be able to bring some relevance to what that means in your life. So, okay, so we are uh, in uh, Acts chapter 18. The cool thing about today is that we are finishing Paul's second missionary journey. He finishes, um, he came to Corinth from Athens. We studied last week how when he got to uh, Corinth from Athens, Athens was a low point in Paul's life. Uh, he was faithful to the word there, but really just a few people responded to his message there, and, um, and no church was planted in Athens, was this highly unusual for Paul, and so he came out of that experience in sort of a low moment, and uh, out of that sense of humility, he came into Corinth, and when you read 1 Corinthians, uh, you get a sense for Paul is filled with God's power, and he said, I came to you not with uh, persuasive words of man's wisdom. But I came to you with the power of the Spirit. So that sense of humility for Paul brought God's power in his life. And so whenever a church walks in humility, uh, God's power uh, accompanies them. Whenever, whenever a pastor or a leader walks in humility, there's power associated with that. So, so today, uh, he finishes up Corinth. He, he gets done with Corinth. He was there a year and a half. And he meets two people there, Aquila and Priscilla, these uh, uh, tent makers that he makes tents with. Uh, They're wonderful people. They're Jewish people that were expelled from Rome, and they both have experienced rejection. Uh, They were Claudius. We know this from history. Not only does the Bible say this, but there's a writer by the name of Sunatonius, a great Roman writer who said that the Jews were expelled from Rome in 49 A.D., and so they had to get out of Rome, and so uh, because of, it's interesting because they had to get out of Rome because of, of instigation with one Crestus, uh, if you read the, uh, the historical account of that. And scholars believe that Crestus is, is, is a Latin form of Christ because of the Christ. There was conflict between the Jews and these Christians in Rome. Now, what's interesting about that is that this is 49 A.D., This is 16 years after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, 
we have a, uh, we have a, uh, a Roman historian, Suetonius, who says that there were Christians in Rome at 16 years later that were such a force that they were upsetting the Jews. And because the Jews were upset, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So what you need to know is there is a real strong correlation between, uh, between history, ancient history, and what Bible teaches. So I love that part. So, so he, he, uh, he comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and then his ministry is done. Paul's ministry is done in Corinth after a year and a half. And Aquila and Priscilla, his new friends, get on a boat with him and they sail uh, across the Adriatic Sea and they go to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is the big city, the New York City in that region. Uh, about 300,000 people lived there at that time. And this was in the province of Asia. Now, I think we got a map. Let me just give you a little bit of background of the map here. Okay, so he's been in Athens, and then Athens and Corinth are about 40 miles apart. And then he sails to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, uh, this, is, this part is called Asia and uh, when you go further uh, east, it's Asia Minor. So he's in Ephesus. And Ephesus is about 300,000 people. And Ephesus is famous for a couple things. One of the things it's famous for is it has a temple there that is uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, uh, I think I asked a few weeks ago how many have ever been to Athens and saw the Parthenon. The Parthenon, I've been to Athens a couple times. Uh, the Parthenon is absolutely incredible when you see it. Karen and I stayed in a, a little hotel called the Acropolis View Hotel, and we could see out of our window the Parthenon. Beautiful lights are on at night, and the, uh, the Parthenon, beautiful, but the temple at Athens was four times, or uh, at Ephesus, was four times as big as the Parthenon. And uh, we've got a picture, I think, of it. Uh, this is the amphitheater. You can just leave it there a minute. This, the, the Ephesus had an amphitheater that seated 25,000 people, and they had plays there and everything. Now, what's interesting is that the, his time at Ephesus ends. Paul was there three years. His time at Ephesus ends when he's had such an impact on the community that they, they worship the, the patron goddess of uh, Ephesus was... Uh, uh, Athena. She was a uh, moon goddess. She was the god of the night. She also was the god of um, little girls, protecting little girls before they got married. And when a little girl would get married, she would cut a lock of her hair off and she would take it to the temple and she would dedicate it to, to Athena. And so Paul, and, and what was really cool about the city is the city made all its money by selling these little figurines of Athena uh, or of the temple. Now, um, here's what's interesting. If you were living in that time, your bucket list would be, by the way, how many have a bucket list? You have a bucket list? Karen and I, you know, we want to go to Ireland. We haven't been to Ireland yet. You know, we want to, we're going to go to, you know, do the, uh, you know, the Alaska cruise. I always tell when, when you're doing the Alaska cruise, the end is near. You know, when you're talking about the Alaska cruise. <laughs> It's literally, it's not good. But anyhow, we want to do that. But if you had a bucket list in those days, you would want to go see the, uh, the temple, which we'll see a picture of in a minute. But at the end of Paul's ministry at Ephesus, he had had such an impact on the community that the sale of figurines of Athena and of the temple had plummeted to the point that the people that were making their money on that weren't making any money anymore. And so there's a riot in this, in this theater. 25,000 people 
For two, for two hours are shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And Paul wants to go out into this arena to address the people and the people the, that love him. He's already converted some of the high officials in the city and they don't want him to go out there because he could get killed. And so 25,000 people in this arena uh, are shouting, great is Artemis. And Paul had such an impact on that city, 300,000 people, that he literally shook the city and changed its culture. So that's one picture. That's the, uh, that's the amphitheater, 25,000 people, and you can go see that today. It's there. So uh, let's see. We got another picture of that, uh, I think. Uh, okay, here's cool. Here's the amphitheater, and there was a, and there was a, a road, 115-foot road, wide road, that ran all the way down to the, to the Adriatic Sea. And so when you came into Ephesus, you'd come down that road and there was stores and, and baths and gymnasiums all inside of this and you would come and you would see the, the amphitheater. But the big thing was, uh, was, was, the, uh, uh, was the temple. We got a picture of the temple. Now this is some of the remains. Had 127 pillars, 60 foot tall. And, uh, and it, was, it was absolutely used. As I mentioned, it was four times as big. That's a, that's a reproduce what it would look like. Had these steps going into it. It was absolutely used, huge. And Paul went to this city. And inside of this temple was a goddess by the name of Athena. The god of, she was a hunter, huntress god. She was over nature. She was god of the moon. She was god of her little girl. She protected women in childbirth. And she was a fertility goddess. Here's a picture of her. Uh, she had these multi-breasts. And uh, that stood for her fertility. Uh, that if you were a little girl in those days and uh, you lived in Ephesus, in that region, you know, as I mentioned, you'd have a lock of your hair dedicated at the temple, and that meant that Athena was going to bless you to be able to produce children in that day. So that's the that's the world that Paul goes into. And when he gets done his second missionary journey out of Corinth, when he leaves Corinth, uh, he's headed he's headed to Jerusalem. He needs a break. He's done. He's done his second missionary journeys, but he leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus while he goes to Jerusalem, and uh, he has a little time. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool to get, he finishes that season of his life. Isn't that good? There's a, there's a wonderful, you look at Paul, he's very human. And, and I love this. When I read the story about him finishing his ministry at Corinth, he goes to Jerusalem, he takes some time off, and that's, that's always important. So it, it's a good thing. Uh, it, it's such a good feeling in life to finish uh, a season of your life, to finish something. I just finished a degree, as you guys uh, know, and it's just so good to finish that. Uh, you know, this week we finished the parking lot. Uh, they're going to be doing some lining on this parking lot here. And I, I was uh, working in my office, and I saw them load up the trucks when they got done, load up the equipment. That, that was done. That was finished. And uh, that's a good feeling. You know, finishing things is a good feeling. When you get something done, you finish a project, you build a house, you get it done, it feels good. And sometimes you have this mixed feelings. You raise your kids and you take them to college and they leave home. And you get, how many are empty nesters? And uh, how many are happy empty nesters? You are happy empty nesters. Karen and I were really sad when our kids left home for, for two weeks. And then I'm telling you, it was like amazing. And if you're sad about your kids leaving home, you know, don't, don't worry. They're coming back, and they're going to bring people with them. So no worries there. This is not the end of the story. But uh, getting things done. So Paul finished his second, second missionary journey, goes to Jerusalem, and then he comes back. He traces some areas where he was in his first missionary journey, and he comes to Ephesus again. 
and Aquila and Priscilla have been there. And they've been, some things have been happening while he's been gone. And basically, Paul's third missionary journey is him planting his bones in Ephesus for three years and preaching and teaching every day. And all through that region, people are coming to the Lord. But there's a story, two stories that I think connect with a common theme in the book of uh, Acts. In Acts chapter 18, verses 23. And uh, let me just read uh, Acts 18, 23, verses 19 through 10. And there's a theme that I see in here. Um, verse 23 after uh, Acts 18. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So we meet a new person. We have Ephesus, a new city, and we have a new person. We meet uh, Apollos, and he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is northern um, Africa, uh, and it was established by Alexander the Great. And here's what's interesting about Alexandria. This is why it's important to understand this. Uh, when you look at Apollos, you'll understand his personality a little bit. Alexandria was the Harvard of its day. It, it had a library. Listen to this. It had a library that had 700,000 volumes in uh, Alexandria. So this guy comes out of very educated, he's a very educated guy, and he comes out of this. When Apollos, uh, Apollos went to, okay, uh, excuse me, uh, meanwhile, a Jew named, verse 24, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, na a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of Scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Paulus wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was in, at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So here's, here's what happens uh, in Ephesus, in that city we just described. Paul is not there in the first story. He's in Jerusalem. In the first story, Apollos or, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, the friends of Paul, are there. And this new guy comes to the synagogue, and he's educated. He's from Alexandria. And not only is he educated, but he's very articulate. He can speak very persuasively. He has a gift of communication. So he's, uh, he's preaching, and uh, he's a learned man, and he's preaching 
but there's something deficient in his theological understanding about Jesus. Now, he's preaching. He understands about John the Baptist. He understands the, the Messiah's coming. And we're not completely sure what he was mixed up on, but it seems like he knew about the baptism of John, repenting, looking forward to the Messiah coming. But evidently, he did not know that Jesus had fully come, been crucified, been raised from the dead, and he had some, something missing in his understanding of the gospel. And so this, remember, he's educated. He's got graduate degrees. And this tent maker couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, and they, they, they're just, they're just blue-collar people. And they take Paul, they take Apollos after the synagogue service. They invite him to their house, and they have some coffee cake, and they have some coffee, Starbucks, I'm sure. And they had, they had this time with him, and they instructed him in the ways of God more adequately. Isn't that a wonderful story? The story teaches us a couple things. One of the things it teaches us is it matters what we believe. It matters what we believe. I went to get uh, some contacts the other day. Contacts, I never like the glasses I buy, so I, I got contacts and I had trouble with uh, you know, reading and, and getting the right contacts for that. So I went to the Delaware Eye Institute and this doctor there, a guy named Mark Cordry, he really was great. So he, I've been trying to get fitted with contacts and um, not with no success, but this guy, he really knows his stuff. And so uh, he, uh, when he was fitting me uh, for contacts, I had my eye exam. It's interesting, he didn't just reach in the cabinet and grab a couple contacts and say, try this. I mean, he like did the little flip thing and how's this better here, better there, that kind of thing. And he worked with me for like 40 minutes to get him just right. And, and when it comes to seeing, precision matters. When it comes to getting fitted for glasses or contacts, precision matters. When it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to faith, precision matters. What you believe and what I believe matters. Doctrine is important. Now, not every doctrine is of equal importance, but there are certain doctrines that are essential, that's a matter of our eternal salvation. And when we listened, uh, or when uh, Quill and Priscilla, when they listened, to Apollos, they understood that he didn't understand the gospel correctly. And when you look at the New Testament, most of the books written in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of Romans, has to do with what we believe and us believing correctly. Now, why is it important that I mention that? It's important that I mention that because in America, we don't believe that what you believe is important. We believe that as long as you believe something, that's what matters. And the gospel is not that way. You can believe the wrong thing and not really believe the gospel um, adequately and, and precisely, and you can, your salvation can be in jeopardy. Because if you don't understand, if we don't understand who Jesus really is, it matters who Jesus is. Jesus was not an exalted angel. Jesus was not just a regular man with good teaching. Jesus was the Son of God. And our whole faith and our whole salvation and our eternal destiny rest on what we believe about Jesus. So when it comes to getting fitted for contacts, precision matters. But when it comes to the gospel, precision matters as well. It matters what you believe. Now, here's what's wrong. 
uh, in our thinking in America, and I've been exposed to it in my education, you've been exposed to it in your education, we just say, listen, if you're sincere and you believe something, good for you. Good for you. You believe something. The important thing is you believe something. I remember when I first came here, there was a, uh, I was doing a little pastoral visit, a young couple, and, and, and I was visiting them, and they'd just been visited by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I, I'm not against anybody in America. We've got freedom to do whatever we want to in America. That's what I love about freedom of religion in America. But they said something to me, and I realized that they didn't understand the gospel. They said, well, they believe, and they're sincere, and I'm sure God's pleased with their, just their being sincere about what they believe. And all of a sudden I realized that these people don't understand the essence of the gospel because what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus is totally different than what the New Testament that you and I read believes. So it matters what we believe. And it's dangerous if we believe the wrong thing. So that's why that they took Apollos off to the side and they instructed him in the ways of God more adequately. Say this way, it matters what we believe if we believe the wrong thing about Jesus, that's dangerous. So, so when you read, you know, like my whole life has been about like studying the New Testament. These letters are about correcting false belief, believing the wrong thing. So the other day, you know, I'm trying to be a good granddad. You know, I got these, uh, you know, got these wonderful grandkids, and they adore me. They love me. Uh, because I'm the fun guy. I just have fun with my grandkids, you know. Karen's making them obey, and they don't like Karen so much, but they love me, you know. <laughs> and they're going to grow up one day, and they're going to know it was all Karen all along, you know. She was the good person because she made them do the right thing, you know. But uh, so my neighbor gave us this swing set, and so I got it set up, and, uh, and I think I got a picture of it, swing set here, and I got... Uh, I got it all repainted and staked down and all that. And my grandkids love this swing set. It's incredible. So I've been spending hours out there working on it, getting it working good. And uh, my granddaughter, Nora, this part here is like a little monkey bars thing, you know, that you can hang on. You know, she doesn't care. Nora, you know, Joel's daughter, cares nothing about none of this stuff. All she cares about is this. She's going to be a gymnast. She loves this stuff. And so there she is upside down. I mean, she just, she just dangles upside down, and her parents are swooning on the deck, you know. And she's just swinging upside down. And she's, you know, she's, she's a lot like her mother and a lot like me. She said, you know, do you think I'm better than all the other grandkids doing this? And I say, Nora, don't tell anybody, but you are. You're better than any of the other grandkids with this. And uh, she's just so funny. But the other day, I noticed that there was a crack. There was a crack. Uh, here uh, in the uh, in the bolt here uh, of this piece of wood that holds us in. So uh, I pulled on a little bit. Oh man, it was real loose. I guess a bunch of kids got on one time, so it's cracked. So I sent I sent a uh, I sent a text to Joel and Stacy because they're going to be moving in with us while they build a house. That's why I said, you know, don't be worried; they'll come back. So they're uh, <laughs> they're going to be moving in with us for nine months, and I'm okay with that. But anyhow. Um, <laughs> So anyhow, I think I need to sit down right now, you know. But they've been bringing stuff over. So I said, listen, make sure the kids, I sent them a text, a warning text. And I said, don't let the kids go out on the playground because it's dangerous. This has been cracked here. And because this crack in the wood makes this part dangerous. 
And so I sent them a text, and they sent me a text back and said, hey, we're, we thank you for the text, and we won't let the kids get on there if we bring stuff over. Yesterday, I fixed it. You can see a picture of this. Uh, has some fine, there's some fine work here. I think we got a picture of me fixing. Do we have another picture with that board there? Maybe that we don't see it there. No, okay, that's all you got. Anyhow, I, I, I fixed it yesterday, so I sent another text and said, all's good. You can bring the kids over. I guess you don't have to bring them over. They're going to be here all the time. But anyhow, bring them over. Uh, but listen, there was that, that crack, that crack in that wood made that swing set dangerous. And a crack in our theology about Jesus is dangerous. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He never had a beginning. He is God in the flesh. He died on the cross for me. And on the third day uh, after he was buried, he was raised from the dead. And I'm saved by faith in that Jesus. That's the Jesus that saves me. And that's the only way to have eternal life. Now here's, so basically, belief is not Belief is not the main component to salvation. It's not, we're not saved because we believe something. We're not saved because we believe something. We're, we're saved because we believe in someone. And uh, Acts 16, 31, I think it says, Acts 16, uh, they replied, listen to this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Look at this. Believe. Paul didn't say, this is in Philippi when he's preaching to the Philippian jailer. He didn't say, believe, just believe, believe, just believe. Believe and you'll be saved. He didn't say, just believe. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't say, believe in your good works. He didn't say, believe that you're a pretty good person. He didn't say, believe that because you do meals on wheels and you help people in the community, that you're going to be okay. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Say it with me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So when I get to heaven, you know, stand before the Lord, and I believe... All of history moves toward a climax where we have, uh, we stand before a holy God. I stand before the Lord. I'm like, I'm not like giving my resume. I'm not saying, hey, Lord, look at this. Look, at I, I preached, you know, 52 times a year for 40 years at Bayshore. I called people and I love people and I serve people and I helped in the food bank and all that. I'm not showing God my resume. Because here's what Isaiah said. Isaiah said with all of our... With all of our righteousness, they are but filthy rags. And you want me, want me to gross you out this morning? When Isaiah said, when all of, our, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, do you know what it means in the Hebrew? It is minstrel cloth. Minstrel cloth. I could expound on that illustration, but that's the end of that illustration. 
Our, our righteousness is like, my best day is like a filthy rag in God's sight because he's absolutely pure and he's absolutely holy. So just, this is a commercial. This is not the end of the sermon. If you were hoping this is the end of it, it's not. Lift up your hand right now. Lift up your hand and say, I trust only in Jesus. I believe in him for my salvation. Nothing else, nothing else, but I believe in Jesus. So that's, a, that's what... So Aquila and Priscilla confronted Apollos, and he got his theology straightened up. The same story, the next story, has the same issue. When Paul comes to Ephesus, he meets 12 men that are called disciples. They were probably John the Baptist disciples. Probably their theology was messed up. And you know what I think? I, this is just a guess, and a lot of scholars believe this is possible, is that their theology was messed up because Apollos' theology was messed up, and they were his disciples. And so because Apollos was off, they were off too. And so Paul had to instruct them. I, uh, and that's why it was important that Aquila and Priscilla confront uh, Apollos and get his theology straightened out because he was going to be a person of influence. And if he's off, everybody that follows him is going to be off. You've got a preacher, you've got a pastor that's off and doesn't have good theology, doesn't understand the Bible, the whole congregation is going to get off. And so uh, Apollos was going to be an influential figure. So they took him and they instructed him uh, in the ways of the Lord. But these, uh, these disciples that Paul meets perhaps are Apollos' disciples, disciples, and they're messed up too. I was, uh, the other day I came home from... Um, from Food Line, we had got groceries, and I buy, I, I eat uh, multi grain bread. So I got my bread out. You know, I think it was like the next day I was got my bread out. I was out of bread. Karen eats a certain kind of bread. I eat a certain kind of bread. So I got my bread out to make a sandwich the next day for lunch. And as I opened this new loaf, it had a spot, a mold spot on the heel, on the first big, big mold spot, about the size of a quarter. I thought, my gosh, a brand new loaf of bread. So I took it out, and the next one had a mold spot on it. And I took it out, and the next one had a mold spot on it. So I'm digging through. I should take it back to food line, but who's got time for that? So I, I, you know, I was down to about six pieces of bread, and then finally the mold disappeared. So I figured it's safe now. So I got a, got a couple pieces of bread, and I made a sandwich. And the next day I got to make a sandwich, and I opened the bread. And then I noticed on the corner there was a mold spot on the corner. <laughs> So my first thought was, I bet there was mold on the corner of that bread I ate the day before. And so I started going through there, went through the whole loaf, and every piece had a mold spot on the corner. Now, if Apollos, if Apollos is wrong theologically, that's going to spread through everybody. And so he had to be instructed. And so uh, Quill and Priscilla instructed him in the ways of the Lord. And this, this, uh, these 12 people that Paul uh, instructed, he said, do you know about the Holy Spirit? And I don't think this is about a charismatic story where they filled the Holy Spirit, did they speak in tongues? The reason I don't think that's the primary point, uh, they did speak in tongues in this story. But the primary point is, is that when he told them about Jesus, they knew about John the Baptist, just like Paulus did. They knew about John the Baptist uh, and, and, and Jesus coming, but evidently they didn't understand the gospel either. And it says in this text, in, in Acts chapter 19, that they believed in Jesus and they were baptized in Jesus' name. So evidently they weren't even Christians yet. 
And so they thought they were Christians, they thought they were right with God, and they weren't Christians because they didn't believe right about Jesus. Here's, here's a wonderful thing for us to think about. Actually, not a wonderful thing, but an alarming thing for us to think about. Is it possible that people could be sitting in Bayshore that think they're a Christian because they like the music and they like to come, but they've never really zoned in and put their faith in Jesus to become a follower of Jesus? You cannot be saved just by coming to church. You can't be saved just because you think you're saved. You can only be saved as you put your faith in Jesus because it, it says this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16, 31. Say it with me again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be, you will be saved. One more time. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So belief is not enough to save us. Belief is like a flashlight. You take a flashlight and you shine it on something. Our faith, our belief, we shine on Jesus. And evidently, these uh, disciples of John the Baptist that Paul meets had not really become Christians. They knew about it. They were hungry for God, but they didn't understand the gospel. And as soon as he explained the gospel to them, they received Jesus and they were baptized. By the way, if you have been, you know, say more than... Uh, you know, a day and you haven't been baptized yet, you're overdue for your baptism. Everybody in the New Testament was baptized right away. We'll baptize people every Sunday at Bayshore. Every Sunday. If you let us know today before you leave, you know, I haven't been baptized, I want to be baptized. We'll, we'll get the tub ready for you next week and we'll baptize you in front of your friends. They were baptized continually in the New Testament. So um, Paul prays for them and they receive the Lord. So let me just uh, say a couple things to you real quickly. Uh, I, I saw some practical things in the story about confrontation. The gospel is at stake here, but uh, confrontation. There's a, uh, there's some, there's a story that both of these stories have to do with confronting someone or some people when they're off a little bit. And confrontation is a part of life. Remember Marty McFly and George McFly in Back to the Future, one of my favorite movies. I think we got a film there. Remember uh, Marty after Biff had wrecked the car and he's talking to, oh, this is George McFly, the dad, and Marty. How many saw the movie Back to the Future? How many know it's probably the best movie ever made, you know? It's a great movie. And he's saying, he's saying to Marty, I know, I know Biff wrecked a car, but I'm not very good at confrontation. Remember that scene? So what is, what's the key about confrontation? These, both of these stories, Aquila and Priscilla confronted Apollos. Paul confronts the disciples that were off. What's the, what's the key to that? First of all, first key is always confront in love. Always confront in love. When you confront somebody, it's never about letting off steam. It's never about making you feel better. Confrontation and giving input in somebody's life is not about you know, just venting, confrontation is always about helping the other person move down the field. And so those of you that are, are dads this morning, you know, a good dad not only loves and encourages, but a good dad confronts, and dads don't confront out of anger or wrath. It says specifically in the book of Ephesians that uh, don't provoke your children to wrath because fathers that, that uh, are, are, are confront everything and are over-confrontational can, dis can discourage kids. So you want to make sure, when, my, when I was raising my boys, one of the things that I did was I tried to make sure that I was very selective in what I confronted them about. 
that, that certain things just didn't matter. S- certain things just didn't matter and didn't have conflict over certain things, but was selective in what you confront about. And so that's important. And never confront out of anger or frustration. Number two, never, ever confront publicly. If you, just a little tip for your kids, here's something you never do. You never do. Never correct your kids in front of their friends. Never correct your kids in front of their friends. How many were ever corrected in front of your friends by your family? And sometimes you're crazy when your kids, your friends are there and your parents correct you. Never do that. You don't correct. If you look at the story of Aquila and Priscilla, there's a wonderful principle about confrontation here. They, they take him home, and in the privacy of their home, they instruct, uh, they instruct Palos in the ways of God more adequately. It was a very private matter. Say this with me. Confrontation is always a private matter. Very, very important. They didn't stand up in the middle. What are you doing? That's terrible. You're in heresy. They didn't do that. They took him aside and confronted him. Now, last uh, weekend when Karen and I got done church here, uh, a lot of times we go out to lunch afterwards. We went to uh, uh, J.D. Shuckers. We eat at J.D. Shuckers in Georgetown. A lot of times when we, you know, when we go out to eat after, after uh, church on Sunday, we went over there. And, you know, we're a little later, so the Baptists have already been there. So we're there, and we can get in there and... Uh, so we're having lunch, and uh, Karen just looked, you know, incredible. And um, she, we were talking about the service, and she said to me, she said, you know, that was just good today, really good, she said. She said, uh, can I give you a little advice? She said, uh, she said, when you read the scriptures, when you come to the little supporting scriptures, you just kind of run over them real quick, and you don't read them clearly and articulately and and she said I I think it would be more effective if you read those scriptures just more clearly and she loves me she prays for me every day before every Sunday before I preach and if I'm not preaching good she didn't pray good so that's the issue right there (laughs) so she's got a right to say that she gives she gives 1,000 or probably 5,000 words of encouragement to one critique so she said that to me. What did I say? I said, well, I don't like that dress you're wearing. This is what I said to her, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't say that to her at all. I said, you know, you're right. I do. I, get, I, I think people don't listen when I read, so I get a little nervous and I go fast. And she just helped me with that. And I'm just really grateful for that. You know why I could receive that? I could receive that because, number one, she loves me. No question about it. She wasn't saying, you just embarrassed me to death today. You did so bad. She said, honey, you did great. You're a rock star. I said, I am, and I'm a rock star, right? And she did. She, she confronted me with love. She confronted me in private. And she confronted me because she wanted to help me move forward. Say this to me, confrontation is always a private matter. Always a private matter. So that's an important, important principle there. Um, what I love about this story is uh, Apollos, his response to that. Apollos' response to that was, was that he listened to them. Here's what I think. I think if Apollos did not listen to Aquila and Priscilla, 
the tent makers confronting and instructing the academic, I believe that if he had not listened to them, we would never have heard from him again. I think that his success was foundational to his listening to input. And I believe that, you know, I've seen a lot of young guys come and gals come as we've had staff over the years. And what I've noticed is the, 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 the guys and the gals that have a real teachable spirit and they want to learn and they want to grow. We got a young man at our Rehoboth campus. We just hired um, this, oh gosh, about a year ago. And he's in seminary right now. Incredible guy, incredible communicator. And uh, you probably hear him at one point communicate. And he's just, he's so smart and he's so talented. But you know what I love about him? He's just so teachable. He wants to learn. You know, the greatest thing in life to know is that you don't know. The greatest thing in life to know is that you don't know. Have you ever met somebody that you know they don't know squat, but they don't know that they don't know squat? (laughs) You know, if you don't know squat and you know you don't know squat, you're going to have a great future. But if you don't know squat and you don't know that you don't know squat, you're, you're going to have a rough future, and that's basically my squat story right there. If you don't know, just, there, and I tell you what, I still don't know squat about a lot of things, and so I'm just learning as I go along. So uh, let me just read one last scripture that we're going to pray together. I, I could say a bunch of other stuff, but I think this is it basically today. Um, so let me read a really cool, uh, watch your tone I mentioned. I didn't mention that, but watch your tone. Uh, it says in Proverbs, put Proverbs 15.1 on the screen. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Your tone and your demeanor in confronting someone is as important as the content. You can have good content, but bad tone and be unsuccessful in, in confronting them correctly. But here's the great, here's a great verse here. Uh, Proverbs 9, 8 through 9. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Say this, let's read it out loud. I'll, I'll read the phrase and you read it after me. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will add to his learning. I love that verse. I believe that, I believe that Apollos, Apollo was a wise man because he listened to this little couple. And they told, I believe they told him in love. I believe they told him in gentleness. Uh, when I was learning to play tennis, how I learned to play tennis when I was uh, in high school and when I was first married, is every Friday night I'd go up to, I lived in Seaford, or Bridgeville for a while, and then Seaford. I would go up to the empty bank um, parking lot, the Wilmington Trust in, in Seaford on, uh, on High Street. And there'd be no cars in the parking lot, and I would take my my bucket of tennis balls, and I would take my tennis racket, 
and I would stand up and I would hit balls against that, that brick wall. Best player I've ever played. I played that, I hit against there. Here's what I discovered. The harder I hit the ball against the wall, the harder it came back. And when you're confronting somebody, the harder you come at them, the harder it comes back. The Bible says, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Say that with me. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Lift your hands to the Lord this morning. We pray that you'll help us in our marriages, Lord, and dealing with our kids, that we'll be gentle, we'll be kind, we'll be full of love and grace. We thank you for the gospel that we stand on today, that we are people who know Jesus and put our faith in Jesus. You put your hands down a moment. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Danny, I don't know that I put my, I'm believing in the Lord Jesus for my salvation. I'm believing in church attendance or something else. And I want to today, I want to publicly acknowledge as I raise my hand before God that I'm putting my faith in Jesus for my salvation. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you've never really fully done that right, would you lift your hand up and keep it up? Several people lifting their hand, understanding the gospel, what the gospel really is. Just keep your hand up high. That's right. That's incredible. Incredible. Thank you, Jesus. Just through Jesus. Let's pray this out loud together with the people that are raising their hands that are receiving Jesus right now. Would you pray this with me out loud? Let's all pray it with them. Lord Jesus, my confidence for my salvation is 100% in you. You are the Son of God. You never had a beginning. You're the creator of all things. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. What happened to you on the cross should have happened to me. I should be under God's wrath, but you took God's punishment that I could be saved. Say this with me. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you've been raised from the dead, and I make you Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.